And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Matthew 9, 37 and 38 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. John thirteen fourteen says, Jesus said, If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Cutest scripture readers yet. Have you ever had somebody ask you, what's your life verse? You know, there's an idea for some people, and and some people really take to it, that that you can kind of find one Bible verse that will be like a a guiding light to your life, like a a kind of motto, a mantra, a purpose statement for you. You you know, a verse that sets the direction of your life, that, that, that truly describes and encapsulates you and, and, and your journey. And until, until now, I've never been able to boil it down to just one verse. Never until this week. You see, this week I was, I was preparing for a scripture meditation that I'm going to do next week during our early morning scripture meditations on YouTube. And I found it. I found it. God revealed to me my life verse. And it's Psalm 45, verse 2. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. I mean, seriously, could that be any more perfect? It's not funny. Why are you all laughing? All right. In all seriousness, you can take that off the screen. Thanks. In all seriousness, I've never been able to boil it down to just one verse for myself or for our fellowship. But this morning, Leah and Hannah read for us a triad of verses that I want us to consider today as sort of life verses for our fellowship together, at least a good starting place. These are three verses that, that, that help guide us, that will help guide our fellowship's life together. You know, two weeks ago, I mentioned to you that when I teach our Next Step membership class, I, I use an article that's titled, Three Questions to Ask When Choosing a Church. And the author argues that those three questions are, what do they believe, which we talked about two weeks ago? How do they behave, which is what we're going to talk about this week? And then finally, what should I do? What part could I play within that fellowship? And so we talked about two weeks ago, what do they believe? And we we took kind of a a 30,000-foot view of our beliefs and of our statement of faith. And today, how do we behave? And, And as we do that... We're going to talk a bit about our new church covenant, the one that we voted on in December, and one that next week together we are going to celebrate and we are going to commit ourselves to and commit ourselves to one another, making these promises to one another before God. Now, before we discuss this, before we have any kind of a discussion about how do we behave, I need to address the fact that some people might immediately hear that phrase, how do we behave, and start to fear that legalism is creeping in. You know, any time you have a discussion of behavior, there becomes a fear of a list of external rules that are going to be imposed upon us. So let's address that right off. 
You know, friends, we need to understand that the discussion we're having about behavior is not a discussion of law. This is a discussion of grace. What we're talking about today is not a list of what we must do, but an invitation to examine what Christ is doing in and through us. Friends, it's not a discussion of our work. We're going to have a celebration of His work in us. That's what we're talking about. I mean, consider with me one of the most frequently used agricultural illustrations we have in the Scripture. Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. Jesus taught in Luke 6, verse 44, each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now, it's not legalism to consider what type of fruit is being produced. Because as we've said before, our activity flows from our identity. How we are flows from who we are. The apple produces apple. The apple tree produces apples. The fig tree figs and the grapevine grapes. So the question that we're asking is what type of fruit should we expect from somebody whose identity is in Christ? Whose roots have gone down deep into Christ? What type of a behavior would naturally result from one who is abiding in Christ. So to answer those who might be fearful that such a description is legalism, I have to say it can become legalistic. It can become legalistic if we take out this list of behavior and make it into some kind of a crushing prescription that we must produce. Rather than understand that what we're talking about today is not a prescription of what you must do, but a description of what Christ wants to do. It's not a prescription of what you must do, but a description of what Christ wants to produce in and through us. You see the difference? You see, the discussion, the fruit of behavior is not law, but grace. It's not a law that we must achieve or do. It's a discussion of what grace will do. We're considering the fruit of grace at work in our lives. Because legalism yells at us and says, you produce some fruit. And grace says, this is the fruit that Christ wants to produce in and through you. Legalism is an obligation, but grace is a celebration. It's not an obligation, but a celebration. Today, friends, we're celebrating. The discussion of what we do, of conduct and behavior, is not an obligation, what you must do, but a celebration of grace. Friends, this is what Christ wants to do. This is the fruit of behavior, of the fruit of the new life that He wants to produce in you and in us. As we abide in Him, as we believe on Him, He wants to produce something. And what's that going to look like? What type of fruit should we expect from the new life in Christ? And these three verses that Leah and Hannah read for us this morning help us see and they help us celebrate what being in Christ should look like. And what fruit we should expect. And not so coincidentally, the three verses also correspond to our revised and clarified church covenant that we voted in. Now, now for those that are fearful that our new church covenant or any church covenant is some kind of a law description of what we must do. Friends, we need to understand that this church covenant, ours and every church covenant, is supposed to be a picture, not a law. It's not a law of obligation. It's a picture of Christ's work in his church. What does it look like when Christ is at work in us and through us? 
Now, like paintings, some covenants are more impressionistic and others are more realistic. Some might be more detailed and some less detailed, but all covenants are meant to give us a picture. It's a picture of if Christ is at work in us, what will our life together look like? If Christ is at work within us, Chestnut Street, what will be the resulting light, the fruit that will flow from us individually and flow from us corporately? What will naturally be produced of a people abiding in Christ? It's not a law for us to follow. It's a picture of grace embodied, grace lived. How will they behave? So as we did for our statement of faith two weeks ago, this is kind of a 30,000-foot view of our church covenant. And so with that preamble, the first thing that we want to consider is identity. Is identity. And if you look at our church covenant, the first section talks about our identity. Who do you follow? Who do you follow? And the first verse that Leah and Hannah read for us this morning is about Jesus' first and defining encounter with his disciples. Matthew chapter 14, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 18 through 19. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me, follow me, there's the follow, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, friends, the point of following someone or something is to make or be made. The point of following someone or something is to make or be made. For example, follow a recipe to make a dessert. Follow directions to assemble and make a bookshelf. Follow instructions to make or to write an assignment. We follow in order to make. But more than that, friends, we follow in order to be made. You follow a training program to be made a better runner. You follow a teacher to be made an expert in your field. You follow a master to become a pianist, an electrician, or a karate sensei. The point of following someone is to be made. So we follow to make and to be made. So the first question we ask is this question of identity. Who do you follow? Because, friends, who you follow is going to determine who you are made, and it's also going to determine what you make. Because when we follow, we are made, and when we follow, we make. So when we commit to following Jesus, the question is, what's that going to make us into? What are we going to be made into? And plus, what will our lives then make? And Jesus calls his disciples then and today, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So friends, as we follow Jesus, we are made like him and then we make others like him. We are made like him and we make others like him. We follow not a set of principles, but a person, not a morality, but a man. We follow that we might be made like him. You see, Jesus told us that's actually the point of discipleship. The point of discipleship, disciple is one who follows. And when we follow, we are made like our master. Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. 
So we follow that our identity might be found in Him. We might know Him, that we might become like Him in all ways, that we follow in order to be made. But more than that, as we are made, we also are going to be making. Because as we follow Jesus and are made, we also make. You follow a recipe to make a cake, and friends, we follow Christ, and eventually we're going to make other Christians. That's the result of following Jesus. You, you are made, but you also are going to make. Because, friends, every healthy living thing reproduces according to its kind. Every healthy living thing reproduces according to its kind. Elephants produce baby elephants. Eagles produce baby eagles. Dolphins produce baby dolphins. And followers of Christ produce followers of Christ. To follow Christ, you will naturally make other Christians. As we follow Jesus, we're being made by Him to be like Him. And as we follow Jesus, He says, through you, I'm going to make other people followers of me. And we know that that's exactly what happens, isn't it? You know, we see this in, in our regular life. If you see someone who's being remade, you know, someone who's, who's being transformed, we become curious. How have you lost so much weight? You know, why do you have so much energy? How is it that you have so much hope and joy in the midst of this situation? When we see somebody who seems to be being remade, we become curious. We go, what is remaking them? And maybe could that do the same for me too? And in the same way, we know that joy is contagious and it wants to be shared. So when somebody is consumed with joy for something that they've found that is remaking them, that is transforming them, what do they do? They invite others to join them. Join me in my joy. Experience what I've found. You know, author C.S. Lewis marveled at this truth. He wrote, Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Our joy is completed. It's consummated in sharing. You watch a movie. You find a restaurant. You go to a church. It brings you joy. What do you do? You want to share that joy. Come see the movie with me. Come eat at this restaurant with me. Join me in the church service. Joy is made complete in the sharing. And friends, if we are being made by Christ to be like Christ, other people are going to see it and they're going to say, what's going on? You're being changed and maybe I need the same thing. Maybe what's changing you could change me and give me hope. And secondly, as we're being changed with Christ, there's joy in that. And that joy wants to be shared. That joy wants to be shared. We want other people to come and to share in the joy. I'm being remade by Christ. I'm following Christ. He, he's, he's transforming me from the inside out. You've got to know this. You've got to experience this. You need to know Him. Come. Come taste and see. The Lord is good. So to follow Christ is to be made like them. But friends, more than that, it is to make others follower of Him. It's the natural fruit the resulting behavior of one who is in Christ. So how do they behave? The first thing to consider is identity. Who do you follow? 
And the second thing to consider, if you looked at our church covenant, is involvement. And friends, my question is, what's your fight? What is your fight? You know, what fight is worth fighting? What cause is worth pursuing? What purpose is worth sacrificing? Friends, what's going to be your fight that you're going to spend your life fighting for? Because every one of us has a limited amount of resources. Time, money, energy, focus. So where are you going to involve yourself? For what are you going to spend yourself? What will be your fight? You know, Pastor Francis Chan said something that should cause every one of us to pause and to fear. He said our greatest fear should not be of failure. Our greatest fear should be of succeeding in things that don't really matter. Our greatest fear should be succeeding at things that really don't matter, of fighting the wrong fight, of spending our lives and wasting them on the wrong things. And friends, I'm afraid Jesus one day is going to return and his criticism of the church isn't going to be that we involved ourselves in evil things. I think his criticism is going to be that we involved and spent our lives on trivial things. That we fought the wrong fight. That we wasted our lives. It's what Jesus warned us of in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Because, friends, the greatest risk, the greatest risk to every one of us is that we waste our lives involving ourselves in the trivial. We fight the wrong fight. We win the wrong battles. We gain the whole world, and in the process, we lose our soul. So, friends, what is your fight? What is worth involving yourself in? In this life, what is worth fighting for? You know, at the very end of his life, The Apostle Paul realized he was at the end. This was the last leg of his journey. He wasn't going to be here much longer. And as he looked back over his life and over his career, he wrote to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race, and I kept the faith. And friends, will you be able to say the same thing? When you come to the end and you look back on your life, will you be able to say, I fought the good fight? Not for trivial things, but for eternal things. What is worth involving yourself in? In this life, what is the fight worth fighting for? In the Scripture, Jesus twice taught His disciples specific words how to pray. In Matthew 6, Jesus responded to his disciples' request to teach them to pray, giving them what we call the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father. And the one other time Jesus gave his followers specific words to pray are words that Leah and Hannah read for us this morning, and very familiar words, because we've talked about these words before. This is the other Lord's Prayer. Matthew 9, verses 37 and 38. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest. Friends, this prayer given by Jesus to his followers, this prayer tells us what's worth fighting for. 
Christ's mission. Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest. Followers of Christ, the Lord's harvest is our priority. It is worth fighting for. It is first. It is defining. It is ultimate. And it is eternal. Our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that really don't matter. So what's worth fighting for? What's eternal? Friends, what is your fight? And this is what the second section of our church covenant considers. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest. It's as we sang this morning, the only thing I want in life is to be known for loving Christ, to build His church, to love His bride, and make His name known far and wide. For this cause I'd live, for this cause I'd die. I surrender all for the cause of Christ. And did you mean that as you sang it? This is worth fighting for. This is worth living and dying for. This is worth surrendering all for. The cause of Christ, the harvest of the Lord. Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest. Friends, do you so pray? Will you go? For this do you live, surrender, and sacrifice. What will be your fight? So the first question, your identity, who will you follow? The second, your involvement, what will be your fight? And the third and the final question, which our, our new church covenant considers, is your investment. Friends, who is your fellowship? Who will you follow? What is your fight? Who is your fellowship? Now, as I've said before, when the Bible discusses fellowship, friends, it's not the fluffy type of fellowship that we often talk about. You know, this isn't about potlucks and tea parties. The Greek word translated as fellowship throughout the New Testament is koinonia, literally meaning a sharing in, a participation. And what Scripture is talking about is not merely getting together to take a walk or watch a game or linger over a cup of overpriced coffee. One commentator noted, koinonia expresses participation, not just association. I like that. It expresses participation, not just association. Fellowship that the Bible teaches is a partnership. It's a participation. It's a sharing in life and a sharing in the work of the gospel. And every time the Bible talks about fellowship, it uses that word fellowship in the same way that Tolkien used the word in his classic, the fellowship of the ring. Now, they weren't called a fellowship because they hung out together, sipped coffee, or watched a game. The fellowship in Tolkien's book was forged by mission. Nine very diverse people together on an all-in mission whose success and survival depended entirely upon one another. And that is the vision of fellowship that the Bible gives us. We are the fellowship of the King. And Chestnut Street, we are called to invest and to make ours that type of a fellowship today. We are to invest in one another and in this community that we might be forged together for our shared fight, grown into a fellowship of the King. And so, friends, that means we invest in and we commit to this fellowship. Again, as Leah and Hannah read for us, Jesus' words in John 13, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
Now, later in the same section of teaching, this was the upper room teaching before Jesus' crucifixion. At the very end of it, he, he summarizes and he says, so as I've loved you, you love one another. But I didn't want to use that verse. Because we kind of have this idea in our culture that love is, is about like feelings and emotions. You know, our cultures reduced love down to some warm, fuzzy feeling. But when we hear Jesus say, love one another, I wanted to use something more tangible, something more visceral. Wash one another's feet. You know, because love is not about trying to manufacture feelings towards one another. Jesus doesn't call us to somehow feel lovingly towards each other. That's not what Jesus or the rest of Scripture means by love. What he means by love is what he said there. Wash one another's feet. It's getting humble. It's getting dirty. It's sacrificial service. It's wholehearted commitment. I mean, think about it. There's no doubt in the fellowship of the rings that that fellowship loved one another, but it had nothing to do with warm, fuzzy feelings. The love meant that they were all in. They put the good of the other first. They sacrificed their own good for the good of the whole. They fought together against evil. They bore one another's burdens. They defended one another. The love and the commitment meant that they washed one another's feet. It was a promise that they made to one another. And it's a promise, friends, that we make to one another. In fact, Samwise Gamgee, who followed the Frodo Hobbit all the way to Mount Doom, again, into the very pits of hell, said, this is why I did it. He said, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. And friends, that same promise is the promise that we need to make to one another in church membership. I don't mean to leave you. In fact, I'm with you to the very end. This may get messy. It may get dangerous. It may get complicated. But I will wash your feet. I am with you. I love you. You know, in the same way, I read some reflections from a pastor about his time serving as a firefighter before he went into ministry. He wrote, when we are in a burning building, firefighters are paired up. We're responsible to get our partner through the emergency and return them back intact. You're accountable for him, period. Get him out of danger. Don't even think about leaving him behind. You have to help him even if it hurts you. And if it comes to it, you trade your life for his. We don't ever leave our partners, not ever. Firefighters use little catchphrases like, if you go, then we both go. And everyone goes home to that. Friends, that's fellowship. That's the type of fellowship that the Bible's talking about. This is what the third section of our membership covenant considers. Consider investing in the fellowship. What does it look like to wash feet? What does it look like to love sacrificially? What does it look like to commit completely? What does it look like to risk willingly? What does it look like to invest fully? A fellowship like Jesus describes, like Tolkien pictures, like the firefighters live, that, friends, I don't know about you, that's the type of fellowship that I want to be a part of. How about you? It's a beautiful picture. By His grace, through us, will He make it a reality? So this question of how do they behave? How do we who believe in Christ behave? It's a question of our identity in Christ. Who will we follow? Our involvement in Christ's mission. What is our fight? 
and our investment in Christ's people. Who is your fellowship? And again, if you look, these are the three sections of our church covenant. And today's three statements of Jesus guide our answer to the question. Friends, where's your identity found? Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Where should your involvement be? Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest. And where should your investment be and what should it look like? If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. There's your follow, your fight, and your fellowship. And friends, if you want three life verses to guide you and to guide us together in answering these questions of how we behave as believers, I think these three verses are a good start. And so in this new year, in 2021, these would be three good verses for you to commit to memory. These would be three good verses for you to put in front of you regularly, daily, and even pray daily. Again, they're not a law to follow. It's a picture of grace. Friends, this is the life. This is the fruit that Christ wants to produce in us and through us. This is no obligation that leads to condemnation. This is a celebration that should lead us to aspiration. So let's gaze together upon the beauty of that life. Let's commit together to cooperate with the Spirit in bringing about that life in and through us. And let's pray together that the question of how they behave might be answered by our Spirit-formed, ever-transformed lives. Church, Chestnut Street, how will you How will we behave? Let's close in prayer. Father, this isn't some description of something that we can do ourselves. None of this can be accomplished by our own strength or our own power. But what a beautiful picture you give us in the scriptures of what you want to accomplish in us And what you want to accomplish through us. What a beautiful picture of your working within and through your people. What a glorious image of your grace. And Father, as we gaze upon it, as we hear again your words, as we pray those words, may your spirit make them true in our lives as individuals and in our life corporately. Father, may you form our identity. May you guide our involvement. May you deepen our investment. And may you transform your people for the sake of your mission that the world might see, that the world might hear, that the world might know that you dwell in the presence of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In closing, let's stand together and sing Shout to the North.